Stripping Down Science, The Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this very special Best of the Naked Scientists with me, Ben Valsler. And me, Mira Senthilingam. We're sitting in for Chris and the gang whilst they're off enjoying their summer holidays. Lucky for some. So we're taking this chance to look back through some of the very best bits of the last series of The Naked Scientists. Coming up, we're discussing the health benefits of red wine. I became convinced that A, wine should be part of a healthy diet, and B, some of the nutrition advice that was being pushed to the general public was actually not based on fact. Finding out why not feeling pain could be more a curse than a blessing. We've met some adults with this condition now, and they'll tell terrible stories about the types of injuries they put up with because they didn't want to not go on a school trip or appear unusual. And Kirsty McDougall explains why this... It's like a woman's voice. That's all coming up on today's very best of The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. Each week, we bring you the latest in cutting-edge science news. So now, we return to some of the more exciting stories from the past year. Now, interestingly, let's kick off with an electrifying experience for someone. This paper in this week's New England Journal of Medicine, Helen, in which this guy uh, was jogging along in the rain and in the thunder, and he was listening to some music on his iPod. And uh, he unfortunately was a victim of a thunderclap. Uh, it jumped onto a tree nearby him, and then this side flash meant the lightning came off the tree and hit him. And at first, doctors were a bit confused as to what had happened to this guy when he pitched up in hospital, because witnesses said he jumped about eight feet across the road, but they didn't know why. When the doctors examined him, he had burns on his chest. He then had two straight line burns going straight up his chest, up the side of his neck, across the side of his face, and ending in his ear holes. When they looked in his ears, both his eardrums had been burst, they'd been ruptured, there was blood coming out. And what had happened was he then was able to say well I was running along I was listening to my iPod uh, and suddenly I found myself on the ground with a broken jaw and all these injuries and it turns out the the thunder had had jumped off this tree and onto him because of the metal in the wires it had gone up the headphone lead uh, making it very hot in the process and burning him and then into his ears and it had superheated the air in his ear canals and made it expand, which had popped his eardrums. And so there's, although Eric Heffernan and his colleagues who wrote this paper in the New England Journal say that uh, iPods are not a risk factor for being hit by lightning, uh, they don't want to get sued, obviously. Um, What they are saying is be careful when you're out in thunderstorms with electrical apparatus because it can make this happen. Do you think that really was the reason why it jumped across to him and it wouldn't have done that anyway? I mean, he might have been hit anyway, but just in a slightly odd way and (laughs) with his eardrums. Most people who who get hit by lightning actually under these circumstances, it, it is exactly that. It's, it's lightning hitting something else and then jumping off of that onto you because you provide an additional or alternative route to ground for the electricity. Um, people are speculating about what he might have been listening to on the iPod at the time. Any any suggestions? Oh, do you know, I've no idea. Pink Floyd, Delicate Sound of Thunder. That's my oh, suggestion. Excellent. Staying with the theme of electrifying personal equipment, here's a story from January about swimwear with a difference. We've heard about solar-powered clothing, Helen, but what do you reckon about a solar-powered bikini? Would you wear one? What first? My question is, what does it do? Why do you need a solar-powered bikini? Well, well this is the brainchild of a researcher at um, 
came at uh, New York University. His name's Andrew Sh- Schneider. I won't kind of let's kind of try and guess which part of his brain he was using when he came up with this idea. But uh, it was featured at the interactive telecommunication program students show in late 2006. What it consists of is a bikini which has been retrofitted with solar cells. So in other words, you've got a photovoltaic material on the surface of the bikini material, which literally c- gathers the energy from the sun and turns it into electricity. He says that uh, the female version, not that there's going to be a male version, but you'll understand why I said in a minute. The female version uh, actually generates about six and a half volts, but it goes through a voltage regulator, so it puts out five volts. It goes to a USB connector, which you can connect your iPod to, and it's capable of charging up your personal sort of iPod or, or MP3 player. But good news is that there's also a male version, the iDrink, as it's called, and apparently it has a bigger surface area than uh, of solar cells than the female version of the bikini. And this puts out enough current, one and a half amps of current, to power uh, not just a charger for your personal MP3 player, but also a cooling device for your can of beer, so you can look cool, stay cool, and listen to cool music at the beach, uh, whilst looking rather tragic at the same time. That sounds fantastic. I have one slight question, though. Can we still go swimming? Well, it this is like a big a thing. very well, bad idea I was looking to into me. this, actually, and I can't find any evidence that it won't short out when you go in the sea with it so it could be a really rather painful sort of combination of a uh, rather sensitive bit of anatomy with a whole lot of electricity Not but you, you think um you know they say that the, the male version has a bigger surface area so it makes more power but can you imagine if you got these on baywatch you know, so they'd suddenly Pam- have Pamela quite Anderson a could power small a, ones, wouldn't they? Well, well Pamela Anderson could power a city, couldn't yeah, she? Oh, I see. Ah, yes. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Pamela Anderson, adorning the walls of teenage boys across the world for nearly a decade. Another thing many teenagers share is a tendency to sulk, have mood swings and fly off the handle at the slightest provocation. Now, we've all been teenagers once and it's not pleasant, is it? You just feel aggressive, you feel wound up, things just get on your nerves. And why should that be? It's interesting because it's not just things getting on your nerves, because when scientists have asked people to try to work out what other people's emotions are, young children are very good at doing it, adults are very good at doing it, teenagers are no good at doing it. So why should we have this sudden behavioural change at around teenage that comes and then goes again? Well, there's a researcher called Cheryl Smith who works in New York, and they were looking at the chemistry of the of the adolescent brain. And they found that there's a substance which is in everyone's brain. It's called allopregnanolone, or THP. And this is like the brain's relaxing chemical. So when you have a stressful experience, the brain pumps out a little bit of this allopregnanolone. And what it does is it increases the activity of a nerve transmitter chemical, which is called GABA, which is gamma amino butyric acid. And what GABA does is actually makes your brain calmer. It reduces the activity of nerve cells, so it therefore makes you feel less stressed. But when people are in their teenage years, for some reason, the effect is reversed. And this stuff, instead of calming your brain down, actually makes you feel more tense. And it does so in the part of the brain called the limbic system, which is concerned with making emotions and making you feel hot and bothered. Which is why, when you actually get wound up about something, you tend to overstep the mark a little bit when you're a teenager, probably down to this chemical. I don't actually think that uh, people are going to try and come up with some kind of treatment, though. I think that this is um, more to the point that... It's unfortunate, but now we know what's causing it, and therefore we should cut people a bit of slack when they're having a bad day when they're a teenager. Like, whatever. Are you bothered? I'm not bothered. (laughs) God, you're so sad. Now, if you've got teenage children, maybe their mood swings have driven you to drink. So it might be nice to know that red wine can actually extend your life. Here on The Naked Scientist, we are often talking about other scientists are uncovering more ways in which enjoying an occasional glass of red wine might be good for us. And in particular, a compound found in grape skins and in red wine called resveratrol. 
It's already been shown to increase the lifespan of mice by around 15%, and clinical trials are currently underway involving people with diabetes. Now, if we, we have news this week from scientists who have discovered yet another possible health-giving benefit of the red stuff, and it could boost our athletic performance and even help to keep us thin. That's according to a new study led by scientists from the Institute of Genetics and Molecular and Cell Biology in Ilkirch in France, who have shown that high doses of resveratrol given to mice, yep, we're talking about mice again, improves their muscle endurance and stops them from getting overweight. Now what the researchers did was they, they fed a group of mice on a very high fat diet and then they gave half of them a really high dose of resveratrol, equivalent to around 100 glasses of wine for, for a human being every day. Every day, yes. And it's, they showed this didn't have any, any negative side effects actually, so having that much resveratrol might be alright, but it's a lot of wine to drink. But anyway, after about three weeks, the mice that were taking this red wine like supplement only weighed about 20% more than, the, than mice on normal diets, because remember we're feeding these lots of fat and they should be getting overweight. And the ones that were just having the high fat diet and weren't taking any supplements weighed 60% more than normal mice. And we, they tested the fitness of these mice, which is a sort of image I have in my mind that I find quite appealing. Mice on treadmills. Mouse Olympics or something. Yeah, wonderful. Uh, and it turned out that the, one, the mice that were taking the resveratrol supplements could run twice as far as normal mice, even if you take the difference in their weight into account. Um, so the reason, the, the, the reason behind this that might be explaining these differences could be the effect of this um, chemical on uh, those tiny energy producing units inside every living cell called mitochondria and essentially what the mitochondria do is they burn the food we eat and convert it into energy that we can use to move and grow mm. and it's thought that perhaps this resveratrol might trigger the process which gives each cell more mitochondria so that essentially you're kind of packing more energy production ability into each cell and also the ability to burn off calories because mitochondria are of course the powerhouses which consume calories and the more of them you have therefore the potentially the more energy you can burn off and therefore the slimmer you are. That's absolutely right. Yes. So, um, unfortunately, like I've already mentioned, you have to eat an awful lot of drink an awful lot of wine to have this effect. But it's possible that in the future we might be seeing athletes perhaps taking supplements of this resveratrol, and maybe one day red wine could be a banned substance at the Olympic Games. I hope not. Oh, that could be, be quite bad if you're in the <laughs> Olympic drinking squad, couldn't it? But uh, that sort of comes on the back of another discovery which was pu published in the journal Nature recently by David Sinclair from Harvard University in the States. And what they found was that mice given this resveratrol, the component that's in red wine, lived 20% longer than mice that weren't given it. So that's really encouraging. And actually they've got a gene that they think it uses uh, or it targets in order to boost lifespan. And it again seems to be through this mitochondria, these cellular powerhouses. And, and they think perhaps it's to do with with these mitochondria producing a byproduct of their metabolism called free radicals that damage cells. And so if you can minimise the production of those agents, and, and resveratrol may be able to do that, perhaps then you can boost lifespan. Another good reason for a nice glass of red wine there. Speaking of which, we've got Roger Corder coming up, who spoke to Chris about how red wine can also protect you from heart disease. The Naked Scientists, supported by the Wellcome Trust. This is a special edition of The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Mira Senthalingam. We're looking back through some of the best bits from the last series. Still to come, we hear from Jeff Woods about people who can't feel pain and Kirsty McDougall, who came in to tell us about how accents are formed. Earlier this year, Chris had a chat with Roger Corder, author of The Wine Diet, about what makes red wine so good for our health. My research for the past six or seven years... Um, has focused on trying to discover exactly what it is in wine that improves blood vessel function and protects from heart disease. So how did you go about that and, and what is the bottom line? Is it good for us? 
all the evidence points to it being good good for us and but it may be that certain types of wine are much better than other other wines um, essentially what we did from a laboratory point of view is 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 we studied exactly what substances in wine could change blood vessel function and then the, in parallel with that we were looking at areas where people were living longer and drinking wine and seeing that these these the wines in these areas were richer in this substance that we identified as being a procyanidin which is a, a flavonoid polyphenol what people would know them as antioxidants but in terms of this effects we were looking at this is a profound change it causes a profound change in blood vessel function because there is a phenomenon called the mediterranean effect isn't there so people who live in the mediterranean basin and and the french paradox as well these french people who managed to have an atrocious diet smoke like a chimney and still live to be 500 years old and, and no one really understood how they did it and what you're saying is that if it's the red wine that they're drinking that could actually be doing that. Well, I exactly. I, I, the Mediterranean diet sprung out of research called the Seven Countries Study, and that, that showed that people living on the island of Crete were li living longer with less heart disease despite a fairly high-fat diet, but an important part of their diet was to drink regular wine. Now, I, I started looking in Sardinia because the highest concentration of, of centenarians were based on this island in terms of, of European population, and I found that their wines were richer in procyanidins than wines from other areas. The Cretan wines are also rich in this, this particular uh, polyphenol. And so I then looked at the French, French population and th there's a, a regional variation in heart disease across France and there's also a regional variation in, in, the, in longevity. And what I found was people living in southwest France were, dr were drinking wines w which were very rich in th these particular polyphenols. But the interesting thing about this and the French paradox, this is one of the areas of France where they eat some of the fattiest foods and, and so I became convinced that A, wine should be part of a healthy diet and B, some of the nutrition advice that w was being pushed to the general public was actually not based on fact. Is there a conflict of interest here Roger because you're a bit of a wine drinker aren't you? You're a wine connoisseur aren't you? I wouldn't say I'm a wine, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I'm a wine connoisseur and obviously we all like to have excuses for our habits but what I was, I was, I was somebody who, who was religiously following a low fat diet and I suddenly started looking at the science of low-fat diets and realised, actually, if you wanted to have a healthy cholesterol level, it was the type of fats you ate rather than having a low-fat diet. And low-fat diets were often boosting... Um, uh, over-purified carbohydrates into people's foods, sugars into their foods, and they were actually changing their heart disease risk in an unfavourable way. And so this drove me to write a book to explain w what it is about eating healthily that everybody should understand. It doesn't matter whether you're thin or fat. Wine can be part of it, but the food you eat is so crucial to your overall well-being. Let's just focus in on the wine story just for a second to, to, to really nail this. So you saw this effect which was distributed across France and the effect rose in the southwest specifically. So what was going on in southwest France that meant the people there, despite an atrocious diet, were protected? Presumably it wasn't just genetic. I wouldn't say the diet was atrocious. It was just different. But, but essentially they, they were growing a grape down there called the Tanak grape, which was very, very rich in, in these protective polyphenols. But, but other wines are also good for you. It's, it's important that a tradition... Is it just red wine, though, Roger? Because uh, lots of people say, oh, you have to drink red wine. White wine's no good. Beer's well, no good. Well, let me provide you with some evidence. Alsace has the lowest longevity in, in France, and it has some of the highest heart disease. That's a white wine drinking area. 
do I need so to go is, on? So it is the colour. It, it is specific. The, the red red wine grapes impart to the wine protective chemicals. Exactly. <clears throat> what what are those chemicals? How do they work? And why does the grape make them? The, the, actually, white grapes also have them. So if you take the white seeds and and seeds from red grapes, they're, they're also present. The, the difference between white wine and red wine is is really the way the wines are made. The, the white wine is, is the fermented juice of the wine, whereas the red wine is a fermented juice with the seeds and skin present. So the longer the, the, the time between the, 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 the fermentation or maceration of the red wine with the seeds, the more extraction of these polyphenols you have, and, and so the higher the levels. I've got an email here from Richard. Richard Vogt, and he's um, writing to us from the... Uh, Montreal in Canada is a big fan of your show. I listen to it uh, while I'm working in my lab. Uh, I heard a question about a recent. I have a question about a recent story which described a compound in red wine that was found to increase athletic ability in mice. I think he's probably talking about resveratrol. But um, if the results could be extrapolated to humans, would we be able to reap the same benefits by simply eating grapes, or is there something special about the wine production that tends to bring it out? Well, well that simple question has many parts. Um, Essentially, it's possible that the polyphenols we see in wine changing blood vessel function could improve athletic ability in the way that perfusion through muscle may be improved and, and so nutrients would get to, to muscle in a way that performance could increase. Um, whether you can get the same benefit from grapes or wine, it's quite clear that, that, that wine, for wine uh, to have a high level of protective polyphenols, you need to have between f four and ten days to have any sense of these these present because the alcohol level has to rise to six percent. Why is the alcohol important? Be because these are not very soluble uh, so molecules. you need it as a carrier to you, keep it there. So, you, so just drinking the grape juice is not beneficial? Not drinking... It's not, nothing much is present in grape juice. And eating grapes, you probably don't have long enough time to extract everything from the seeds. You're really better off with a glass of wine. But there are alternatives. OK, well, now we've... OK, so we've got wine. It's got this stuff in it. How do we actually get that into the body? Obviously, we drink it, but how does it get where it needs to go, the blood vessels? Why does it affect your risk of, of vascular disease? How does it work? Well, essentially, if, if you imagine that, that, that blood vessels are a, a tube and they have a, a lining which is, is protective uh, and, and it's important that that function a healthy way. Now, the, the, the chemicals in, in wine are able to boost the healthy characteristics of this lining so that you reduce your, ris your risk of heart disease. Now, the... the Many people may be aware that, that chocolate has also been said to be helpful. Now, the, the, the point about chocolate is that dark chocolate has the same polyphenols in as a good red wine. And so for, for non-wine drinkers, if, if they want to get these polyphenols into their, their diet from other sources, then dark chocolate become, becomes a, a possibility. So can we just possibly... Um, I bet people out there are dying to know. Can you say in a snapshot... What should we be eating? And uh, how many glasses of wine a day can I drink <laughs> within is, that healthy is there, diet? Yes, is there enough in the average glass of wine to do this? If you, look, if, you, if you look at the average glass of wine, the supermarket wines, perhaps there isn't enough to, to have much benefit. So I, I hope with time we're going to change people's awareness of wine and also the way that it's labelled. If there was more details about the winemaking process, one could read the label and think, oh, it's been fermented a long time, it's much more likely to have a higher level of these, these compounds. There's no information on, on a, wi a wine. Um, how much should you drink? Well... 
all, all the scientific evidence about reduced heart disease actually reflects a consumption level that is similar to what government guidelines recommend. So for a woman, that's no more than one to two glasses, small glasses per day, 125 mils. For, for a man, three, two to three glasses is okay. But a, an important factor about people benefiting from wine consumption is they're often consuming it with food. It's part of a lifestyle pattern. It's not going to the pub and shoving down a few glasses of wine and then thinking, I've got all the benefits. Because studies have shown that people who drink without food are more likely to have high blood pressure. High blood pressure increases your risk of heart disease and it increases your risk of a stroke. So it's important to understand fully the lifestyle combinations. Got another email here from Gavin. He says, I'm listening to you in Nottingham on your podcast. Um, it's recommended that we eat five portions of fruit and vegetables a day. So I'd like to know if I liquidise all of my five portions into, into one, drink the whole lot and t- take nothing away, would that still count as my five portions and get me off the hook? I, I think I think it would. I wouldn't su- suggest eating them, drinking them all at once because inevitably it'd be more a drink than a, a, a solid mass. But I, I think that over... Over the period of a day, you would you would get the same benefit. Um, I think what's important about the five fruit and vegetables per day is not necessarily the fibre; it's all the nutrients that are in these in these foods. These these nutrients help reduce your risk of heart disease and cancer, and that's what's important. Much more important than the fibre. Eating a high fibre breakfast cereal doesn't reduce colon cancer. Studies have shown that. It's the nutrients in people's diets that are high in fibre that are, are more important. Another question here along the lines of what we can drink. Rosie Lee in Saffron Walden asks, if red wine is good for us, is sherry good for us too? Well, sherry is quite a rich source of alcohol. So, but in moderation, I think it's it's. I wouldn't suggest you stop drinking a, a, the occasional glass of sherry. But I think it's got to be taken in the context of your overall sense of well-being. Don't drink too much, and make sure the other aspects of your your life are healthy. But it doesn't have the same specific benefits, no, perhaps, it, it, as it, red it wine. It doesn't contain the same chemicals as wet red wine. Sorry about that, Rosie. But yes, in moderation, and if you enjoy it, why not? That was Roger Corder, chewing the fat with Chris and Helen, but only when accompanied with a glass of red wine. For those of you who don't drink wine, you may like to know about the raw product. Here's Kat with one of your questions about grapes. We've got a question here from Corian in the Netherlands, and he, she, they want to know, how are seedless grapes grown? If there's no seeds, obviously uh, plants grow from seeds. How does this work? The correct answer is that seedless grapes, uh, the plants that grow them, are actually clones. So instead of growing them from seeds, they're grown from cuttings, Um, so from existing plants. So obviously the first seedless grapes were a plant that arose through mutation, and some growers must have noticed this and you can basically take cuttings you take a little a shoot or a stem off the plant dip it in rooting powder put it in the ground and a new tree will grow this is how a lot of plants are cultivated now um, and also a lot of seedless varieties that's how it's they're causing done. problems with bananas though isn't it we're talking about yeah, bananas because exactly. they're all clones they're, they're, they're getting all, struck down by funguses and things they're all genetically identical so if a, if a population is genetically identical it can very easily be wiped out because it has the same resistance to different pathogens so that's how it works Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. You're listening to a very special edition of The Naked Scientists with Ben Valsler and Mira Senthilingam. Looking back over the last series and picking out the juiciest morsels of science for you. Now, even if red wine has health benefits, 
Drinking too much of any alcoholic drink can make you feel really bad the following morning. But this pain is your body's way of telling you that you overdid it. In February this year, Jeff Woods of the Cambridge Institute of Medical Research came into the studio to tell Chris about how some people are completely incapable of feeling pain. And we came across a bunch of children who were reported never to have felt pain. And at first we didn't believe that this could be the case. But we saw a number of these children and they and their parents reported that they'd never felt pain of any type throughout their lives, whether they'd fractured bones, burnt their skin, scalded themselves drinking boiling water. It was a huge, huge problem to the parents bringing these children up and later on for these people when they became older children, teenagers, adults. And furthermore, there was nothing we could find that was wrong with their nervous system. They had normal intelligence, they had normal nerves, the nerves seemed to conduct impulses correctly, their brains seemed to be put together correctly, and it didn't make any sense by the current theories of how pain is controlled. And so we set about trying to find if there was a genetic disease that they had, because it wasn't all people in a family who would be affected by this condition, it would just be some members. And so we used three families where parents were first cousins, so-called consanguineous uh, relationships. And using those three families, we mapped the condition uh, down to a gene called SCN9A. And in each of our three families, we found a different fault in that gene, which abolished its normal function. Where is that gene turned on? What cells carry that gene and, and switch it on? It's not entirely clear at the moment. It's probably expressed in a number of parts of the brain and in a number of different types of nerves, but it's very highly expressed in the pain-sensing nerves. And it probably has a redundant function elsewhere, but in the pain-sensing nerves, it seems to be expressed only at the very tips of those nerves, and it's the tips where pain is sensed. So what does it do? How does it work? Well, all pain is tissue damage, and... For that reason, it's very important that a species knows it's been damaged and stops itself being damaged. And it seems there's a whole series of proteins which detect various types of damage, be it hot, cold, pressure, etc. And they seem to be integrated together by this SCN9A, which seems to be an amplifier which takes these small initial tissue damage signals and turns them into a much larger sodium impulse and then a nerve can fire and actually the brain can then sense that there's tissue damage going on and avoid it. So it's almost like an engine. You sort of turn the key and it, the engine turns over but doesn't start. And what you've got with your nerves is that there's lots of turning over, lots of starter motor activity, but there's no firing of the engine. Absolutely right. So why should these families have this? What's happened and where, where did this change come from? Oh, I guess it's just the random mutation that occurs in the human genome. And unfortunately, if your mutation occurs in an essential gene, it's going to give rise to damage. Why is it so uncommon? Um... I don't know. I've no idea. Some diseases are desperately rare, some are common. We usually use the excuse that if a disease is common, there must be some benefit to carrying that disease. But it's very unclear. Probably this gene's very um, important, and any mutation in it is not well tolerated and usually got rid of as time goes by. Now, you mentioned the people who you spotted who had this problem and couldn't feel any pain. They had sort of inbred within their family. So that means one person was carrying one dodgy copy of the gene. They got together with someone who was carrying a, another dodgy copy. And when you put the two together, you end up with someone with two dodgy copies of the gene, which is why they actually can't feel pain. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. And we all have two copies of most genes. And so just having one faulty copy is fine, because as long as you've got one copy of the gene telling the body what to do, everything seems all right. The parents of these children have no problem at all with their pain sensation. But what I'd like to ask, Jeff, is that if you normally have two copies of this gene and they're working, both of them are switched on, I, I assume because I can feel pain, I have two working copies of this gene. Does this mean if I marry someone and have children with them who has uh, one copy working, that you could have some kids that would have only one copy of the gene working and, and therefore they'd be less sensitive to pain than I would be? No, that doesn't seem to be the case. Most diseases like this, as you've described, are called recessives and carriers of recessives are very common in the general population and carriers have no minor feature of the disease they carry. They're just normal. So we don't think it matters if you carry a fault in this gene. We have extended our studies, as we discussed prior to this program, looking at changes in the gene that occur, so-called SNPs, variants which occur in almost all genes. So this is just nat natural variation that people have in the population? That's right. And it doesn't, doesn't switch the gene off, it just means it maybe works slightly differently from one person to the next? Well, we asked that very question. We said, is there any link between the degree of pain feel people feel and changes in this gene which occur in the normal population, there does seem that this needs to be one of about three or four genes where small changes in its function affect our pain thresholds. So if you've got a gene which is, only seems to make a difference to your nervous system when it's in a pain-conveying nerve fibre, does this gene explain why some people, for instance, have an incredibly high pain threshold and yet other people seem to wince at a gnat flying past them? I think it does. I think it's one of the explanations. There's a number of genes now which have been found to alter people's susceptibility to pain. And initially people were thought to lack moral fibre, etc. But it actually seems there is a strong genetic basis to not be feeling pain differently. And it's always been the case that some children cry when blood's taken, others don't. And people have said, oh, they're just being brave, they're not being brave. Some women need a lot of pain uh, control, having babies. Others seem to need very little. It now actually seems that these people do have different abilities to tolerate pain. What were the consequences for the people in Pakistan in the families you studied who had this problem and, and couldn't feel any pain? Um, much greater than just being rather stoic. Because it sounds quite exciting, because you think, when, you know, when I go running, um, it's, it's actually the, the pain of being grossly unfit that holds me back. You know, <laughs> could, could these people become super athletes, for example, because they don't feel the fact they've got the, this heart-wrenching stitch and their legs are about to collapse, and then they feel like they're gasping for oxygen, and I'm just describing myself when I run upstairs, for example. Um, yes, we, we thought along the same lines as you that pain was holding us back from being able to do better things, but in fact, no, pain is actually there for a very, very good purpose. Pain's telling you you're working too hard and you're starting to cause tissue damage. And if you carry on, you either break, break bones, tear muscles, fall down exhausted, etc. And these children and some adults we've now met with this condition have none of those restraints on their body, and so they continually damage themselves. They do dangerous things, do they? Um, no, not necessarily. Um, they don't deliberately do dangerous things. When they're children, they'll do stupid things because they don't know to stop running into walls, jumping off high areas, I don't know, just sitting well, down very quickly. One of them quickly. jumped off a roof and died, didn't they? Yes, that's right, and he did that for his birthday because he'd had none of the restraints. And the rest of us have to stop us doing painful things. He was just trying to give his friends a great show on his birthday. 
We've met some adults with this condition now and they'll tell terrible stories about the types of injuries they put up with because they didn't want to not go on a school trip or appear unusual and yet they'd have broken major bones not be able to stand up because of fractures having burnt their lips on boiling water they'll, they'll do things like walk on fire they will literally without doing any jiggery pokery or tricks they, they walk on hot coals and things don't they they will and they won't feel pain but they'll cause as much damage as if you did it OK, so we've proved that it can be bad if you have all your pain turned off all the time, but it strikes me you found something incredibly interesting because there are lots of people who in their lives have to go through incredibly painful things. Anaesthetics are not brilliant, are they? Uh, they're very non-specific. they cause lots of side effects, and if you take things like morphine or, or heroin for painkillers, they can switch down your heart and your breathing, so people die of, of heart and respiratory depression. Um, if you've got something which has the power just to inactivate this part of your nervous system, can we exploit that to make an amazing drug? I certainly hope so. I mean, it, you've, got, you've, got, you've got a patent on this already, presumably. <laughs> no, we, do, we don't have a patent on it. No, we've not, we're not exploiting the result at all commercially. We're just doing it academically. Others hopefully will. And I know drug companies are looking at both this sodium channel and many other similar ones. And the hope is that if the people who have none of this protein feel no pain but don't have other side effects, then if you block this protein in a normal person, they'll have a painkiller without side effects. And that's exactly the hope that's, uh, that many drug companies are now working on. The is that problem, feasible? We think so. The problem is that there's about 11 of these sodium channels and they are very similar to each other. And so the problem is going to be getting drugs which are totally specific just to one of these sodium channels and doesn't spill over and block other sodium channels. That was Jeff Wood from the CIMR at Cambridge University, talking to Chris about his recent discovery of individuals who don't seem to be able to feel any pain whatsoever. While pain is there for a reason, many of us would rather take a painkiller than have to suffer. This inspired a question from Morris, who wanted to know how painkillers know where the pain is. What a great question. Well, the answer is, Morris, uh, it's very simple, actually. When you take a, a pill like an aspirin or a paracetamol, what it does is to, is to target the inflammatory cascade. Now, what that means is that if you have an injury to a part of the body, you start to make substances in the damaged part of the body that signal to nerve cells that that part of the body is hurt, that it's uh, tender, and that you need to m not to uh, move it around too much, not to stimulate it or damage it too much, so you guard it and keep it, keep it soft. Now, uh, the way in which these painkillers therefore home in on the damaged area is that they just block that cascade of inflammation everywhere in the body at the same time. So anywhere that is hurting just doesn't hurt as much. So it's not that the, the painkiller homes in just on your headache. It has its effects everywhere in the body, but you only notice the effect where there was the pain before because it stops it being so bad in that particular area. In February, we spoke to Cathy Stannard from French A Hospital in Bristol about the causes of phantom pain. Luckily, she stayed with us to answer a tricky question from Paul in Lowestoft. Um, this time of the year, you obviously get cold hands, and a, a quick but rather painful way of warming them up is by sticking them into warm water. Hmm. Um, what you said earlier, pain is a sign of damage, or warning of damage being. Mm -hmm. So, um, apart from being fairly stupid, is this uh, damaging your hands, and what is actually happening when they're coming back to life? Cathy, what do you think? I th well, I think, it's, I think it's a very difficult question. Um... I guess it's partly because the cold itself um, produces quite profound chemical changes um, in and around the nerves that report pain messages, which is why 
anybody who's had their hands um, cold for a long period of time will describe how intensely painful it is. So I guess that the nervous system is already in a, in a rather sensitized state. And then one adds the um, adds another um, signal to those nerves and what nerves do that aren't behaving properly is they misinterpret sensory information and my guess is that partly what's happening is you have nerves that have been as it were upset by the cold and when you apply a warm stimulus because I guess um, Paul is talking not necessarily about putting your hands in very hot water but just warm water the warm stimulus might actually be interpreted as being painful um, which of course is not doesn't necessarily mean it's damaging. Um, I think also it may well be something to do with with mixed signals getting to the brain. So you have the signals coming that your hands are very cold because you've been outside for a long time, and then you have a, a mixed signal about a different sensation coming in. And often um, these confusing signals end up being interpreted as a sensation of pain. I don't know whether that's the right answer, but that's what I would guess. Thanks to Cathy Stannard there. Still to come, Kat and Kirsty McDougall compare women to a clarinet and we find out how to turn an oven shelf into a gong in a classic kitchen science. Laying the facts bare, the Naked Scientists. This is the very best of the Naked Scientists with me, Mira Senthilingam and Ben Valsler. In a typical episode of the Naked Scientists, you'll hear lots of different accents from all around the world In November last year, Kirsty McDougall came in to explain how the voice works and why two people can make the same language sound very different. Okay, so the voice um, is a bit like an instrument when we produce a vowel sound in that we've got the mouth and the throat acting as a resonator, so that's what we call the vocal tract. So you've got air coming from the lungs and passing through the voice box. Um, The vocal cords are vibrating very rapidly and um, this passage of air then has particular frequencies which are being emphasised by the resonator um, of the vocal tract a bit like, say, the body of a clarinet or a flute. So, so why is it that some people, for instance, it's obvious you have a little sort of twang that says down under. Uh, you sound a bit different to me. Why, why is that? Um, so why do people speak with different accents? Um, different language communities or speech communities have agreed um, different targets for the sounds of their language and their way, the way they're going to realise them. So, um, for example, comparing my Australian accent with your British accent, um, the, wor- the vowel in the word park, P-A-R-K, how do you say it? Park. Park. Um, whereas <laughs> for me, it's, it's, for me, it's um, park, which is produced with the jaw a bit higher and the tongue a bit higher and also more nasalisation. So yeah. for you, you've got your mouth... So it's all big. learned, isn't it? It's all learned. It's it's agreed by the community and you, you learn your accent as a child. Um, those linguistic targets are set by the speech community and then you tend to... Um, well, I mean, I, I can do a sort of semblance of an Australian accent, and I apologise to any friends. So if I say, good eye, mate, you know, I mean, I can begin to sort of do that, but Rory Bremner does this brilliantly and takes off Tony Blair and all that kind of thing. So when I want to sound like you, to a certain extent, what am I having to do to, to try to work out how you're speaking and make my voice sound like you so that I can, I could pass as, you know, if I was Rory Bremner doing Tony Blair, I could pass as Tony Blair. How's that done? So do you mean changing your accent or, or mm. trying to well, sound like... It, yeah, sounding, I mean, I guess sounding like someone else is, is essentially tr- changing your accent to a certain extent, isn't it? Um, I think within a given accent community, 
trying to sound like different individuals is not really about changing your accent. That's about trying to adopt more individual habits um, within the way those speakers speak. Um, if you're trying to change your accent, then you'll be moving those linguistic targets from what the um, your own speech community has agreed to what the Australians or whoever they are. Yeah, we're very lucky because Kat has brought in some instruments, which I guess you, you're actually going to use these to demonstrate actually the difference between, uh, say, a man and a woman. <laughs> Indeed. I, I, I mean, in voice, vocal terms, yeah, hang on. So well, what we were going to demonstrate was um, the difference between the resonances of, say, the, the vocal tract of a woman and a man, and a vocal... Uh, female vocal tract is much shorter um, than a male vocal tract and so that's, we were sort of going to mirror that with the clarinet. So what I have here is I have a normal B-flat clarinet. It's about uh, a metre long, made of wood, and it sounds like this when you play it. And then I have this rather impressive beast over here. This is proof that size is everything, actually, because this is enormous. What, what the hell is that? This is a bass clarinet. It looks, it's about the size of, bigger than a tenor saxophone. It's also based exactly on the clarinet. It's made of wood. It's a single reed instrument. But it's probably around two metres long, coiled up. Um, and it sounds like this. So it's exactly the same sort of timbre of sound. It, the, the two sounds are very similar. So play the little one again. But the, I like the big one. The big one, it's a great <laughs> instrument. But it sounds much, much deeper because, you know, the, the instrument's just much bigger. It actually needs more air to put through it when I'm playing it. So, Kirsty, is breath. that a good analogue for what's going on in a man's voice box versus a lady's one? Um, well, it is in the sense that the female vocal tract is, is shorter than the male one. Um, but the different sounds that we produce, particularly vowel sounds, um, in human speech involve adjusting the shape of the the resonator by moving your tongue and jaw and lips. Um, we're not changing the length of the vocal tract. Um, so, so does this mean that some people who are, are really good singers and sound really nice, they're like a single malt whiskey, they can sound great <laughs> on their own, you know, is it because they've got the perfect sort of head anatomy to give them the, the nicest resonances and the nicest... It's, the nicest setup. Maybe. It's to do with the anatomy, but also the control that they've um, learnt to develop. So, with the right anatomy and the right training, the human voice can become a beautiful musical instrument. Now, could you believe that the same thing could be said about an oven shelf? Last year, Derek and Dave went to Hitchingbrook School to test this out in a kitchen science experiment. Hello, welcome to Hinchingbrook School, where we've come today to do some, uh, some more fantastic science experiments with uh, some of the guys who are here at the school. And with me, of course, is Dave, fellow naked scientist, who's set up the experiment today. So, Dave, quickly, what is it we're going to be doing? We're going to be building a gong out of an oven shelf. We're going to be building a gong out of an oven shelf. Sounds brilliant. OK, and also we've got two volunteers who've come from Hinchingbrook School today. So, could you just tell me your names and what years you're in, please? Um, I'm Matt. I'm in Year 12. I'm Nick, and I'm also in Year 12. OK, brilliant. And uh, guys, do you do science? Are you into science? Um, yeah, I study biology, chemistry and physics. OK, he's hardcore. Can you equal that, Nick? Um, not really, just physics for me, uh, but I like it. OK, but we reckon with knowledge of physics, glad he like it, uh, we reckon with knowledge of physics you'll still be able to kind of maybe even explain this experiment for us, so uh, let's hope you can do that. OK then, so, you at home, you definitely can do this experiment, and I trust you, there's some amazing, amazing stuff for you to hear if you do do this experiment yourselves at home, so it's going to be great. What you need is an oven shelf, right? So basically one of those kind of metal shells out of your oven. 
You also need two bits of string, each of which are about a metre long. And finally, you need some kind of blunt implement for bashing the oven shelf with. So a wooden spoon or a metal spoon, something like that is absolutely fine. OK, and Dave, what are we going to do with these things? How do we set it up? It's really simple, Derek. All you do is you take your oven shelf, you tie a piece, one piece of string to each end of one side of it. You then wind the other end of the two pieces of string around your fingers, stick your fingers in your ears and get someone to hit the oven shelf. So you've got to basically take the oven shelf, you've got to tie um, a piece of string to one corner, tie another piece of string to the, the corner next to that, so it's kind of hanging a bit like a, a picture on your wall or something, but, but there are two separate pieces of string here. And then you've got to wind the other ends of those bits of string around an index finger, uh, so that's two index fingers wound up, and then stick those fingers in your ears and get someone to bash it and tell us what you hear. And of course, we've got Matt and Nick, who here at Hinchingbrook School are going to be doing this for us very, very shortly. So what do you think you're going to hear, Matt, when, when you do that? Um, probably a very loud noise. OK. Uh, and Nick, I mean, he says very loud noise. Any more detail than that? What do you uh, think you might hear? I'm thinking maybe a ringing or a buzzing. All right. OK. Well, we'll find out. So, Dave, tell these guys what to do. Well, first of all, should we just listen to the oven shelf normally? So if Nick could just hit the oven shelf and we can listen to it. OK. So Nick's actually armed with, with kind of a, a pen, which he's going to use as a beater to hit it with. And uh, Matt is ready holding the shelf, but he's not sticking his fingers in his ears yet. So go for it, Nick. OK, then, so, Matt, what does that sound like? Uh, just like a ringing sort of sound. Right, now, stick those fingers in your ears. Oh, he's very nervous, like he doesn't know what's going to happen. Right, now, then, we want you to tell us, Matt, as soon as uh, Nick starts hitting this thing, what it sounds like. Here we go. Oh, it's a much lower ringing sound. OK, then, now, we actually, Nick, we, don't, we want you not just to hit it once, all right? That was obviously a good effort, but we want you to give him a, a bit of a concert here, OK? If you okay. could kind of play this thing like a, you're a professional xylophone player, right? So put your fingers back in your ears, Matt. Right, here we go. That, that sort of, thank you, Nick. How do you like your performance? Uh, equal to Mozart. Yeah, absolutely. So, and what, how did it sound, Matt, <laughs> listening yeah. to that? Well, it's a very low ringing sound, and yeah, just that. And can you think of a musical instrument that it sounded like? Well, we say it sounds like a gong, personally. Now, <laughs> maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. Anyway, it's much, much lower, and it really doesn't sound like the oven shelf used to sound at all. Now, we are aware, of course, that you at home listening have not actually been able to hear what Matt was hearing. We have actually set up a little setup here so that you can hear what's going on. We've actually wrapped up a microphone in the string, and we're just going to give it a little hit, and then you will be able to hear what it sounds like. Right then, so there you go. That is what it sounds like, and it does sound absolutely fabulous. So there we go. Dave, what we want to know, of course, is what is going on here. Why are we hearing a much lower pitch sound when we've kind of got this set up? Well, first of all, we've got to understand what sound is. Now, the way you hear me talking um, is that my voice box vibrates, which makes the air vibrate. Then what you actually hear is your ear vibrating. Now, what the sound is travelling through and what kind of sound it is can affect how much energy gets to your ear, so how loud it feels. OK, so when we're listening to you, we're hearing the sound travel through air, right? Yes. So an air is really sloppy. It's not, it's not really fluid and it's not very stiff. So if, especially if you move something slowly through it, it's very hard to get much energy into it. This is why if you want to have a deep bass speaker, it's got to be absolutely enormous. To get the energy into the air, you've got to have a huge thing, huge board moving backwards and forwards. Now, the higher the frequency, the faster you're wobbling backwards and forwards, the stiffer the air feels. It's a bit like water. If you move your hand through it slowly, it feels really fluid. But if you slap your hand down really hard on it or belly flop, it hurts like hell because it feels much more rigid. OK, so you, you've talked about kind of moving your hand faster and so on. So how does that relate to sound? 
Well, the higher the pitch, the faster the vibrations. So the, the high pitches can move from the oven shelf to your ears really well normally. But because the oven shelf is quite small, the low pitches can't move very well. So all you can hear when you just hit it is the high pitches. Now, if you put something quite stiff, like a string, if you've got a complete connection from the shelf through the string to your ears, the string is quite stiff. So the, the, even the low vibrations can get through the string. So you can hear the low vibrations, which are always there, but now you can actually hear them. So really then, the string is just a much better transmitter of, of the low vibrations and the low frequencies, and that's why we hear a much deeper sound. And, uh, and in fact, the oven shelf, when we hit it and when we just listen to it through air, it's still producing those low vibrations, but it's just that we, we, we can't actually hear them through the air. Yeah, they're very, very quiet. You can't hear them. OK, well, thanks for that explanation, Dave. And uh, I think Matt and Nick, you, you both, did, did that make sense to you? Yes, perfect sense. OK, then. and Nick actually was doing the banging of the oven shelf earlier, so didn't get to hear it. So finally, we're just going to give Nick a chance to hear what it sounds like and commentate on it. So Matt's going to be doing his kind of xylophone Mozart job, and uh, Nick's going to be listening. So let's go for it, guys. Tell us what it sounds like, Nick. Beautiful. <laughs> Fantastic. So there you go. If you've not heard this beautiful sound at home yet, then please do get out your oven shelf and get some string on it and uh, see what you hear with your fingers stuck in your ears. Fantastic. Thank you very much to you guys, Matt and Nick from Hinchingbrook School, and also to Dave for doing all the explanations and setting it all up. And that's all for this week, and we'll be back next time with more Kitchen Science. So until then, it's goodbye. That was Derek with Dave, Matt and Nick, proving that an oven could be almost as good for making music as it is for making cakes. If you like that, there are loads of experiments that you can try out on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. Fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed, <laughs> on your way to work, or even at work? Why not subscribe to our podcast? For more information, visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast. This is the very best of the Naked Scientists, and now it's time to look at the lifeblood of the show, your questions. You send us questions on every conceivable science topic, and some of them stretch even Dr Chris's massive brain. To give you an idea of the range of questions that you call or email in with, here's a few choice samples, such as this one from Rob in Huddersfield. He says um, he loves the show and it makes him want to move to Cambridge so he can listen to it live. So thanks for, thanks for letting us know that, Rob. That's fantastic. And he has a question for us. He says um, it's regarding fats. Now, you hear people referring to such things as good and bad fats, i.e. peanuts are a source of good fats, in inverted commas. Um, what's the difference between good ba fats and bad fats? And are good fats actually good for you or are they just not as bad for us as the bad fats are? Chris, what do you think about that? It's a good question and it has reasonable um, grounds for thinking there are things that should be referred to as good fats and bad fats. If you look at the way people eat and the length of time they live in the Mediterranean, this gives rise to a thing called the Mediterranean paradox or the French paradox. People there seem to live a lot longer than they ought to because they eat very fatty food. But the fats they eat are of a certain type. They're very rich in things like olive oil. And if you look at the olive oil they're eating, what's in olive oil? Well, it's very rich in a type of fat called a monounsaturated fat. Now, when we talk about fats, we're talking about long chains of carbon atoms all linked together. And you can either have one bond, in other words, one line between one carbon and the next, or sometimes you can have a double bond. And if you have lots of single bonds between them, then that's saturated fat and it's bad for you. And the reason it's bad for you is like lard. All of the carbon chains can get very close together and stack up very, very neatly. And this forms a very solid block of, block of fat. And it's not very chemically exciting and it just clogs your arteries up. If you have things like olive oil, with these it has this one single double bond in it. So uh, it means that the chain gets kinked. So the carbon chain gets bent or kinked wherever that's, that double bond is. And it means that the oils 
when they when you try and press them together, they don't stack up very neatly, so they don't form this block of solid lard. They're actually much more chemically exciting, and this is why we think that they might be good for you, because when you feed people these oils, they actually reduce the cholesterol level in the bloodstream, or they push up the level of what we call good cholesterol, because when you eat fat, it raises cholesterol in the bloodstream. And that's because when we absorb fat from the intestine, we secrete substances from the liver, which are very rich in cholesterol, to help the fat be absorbed. And those substances which, uh, come, which, which are in that stuff you secrete from the liver, a lot of cholesterol, come back into the body and then go into the bloodstream. So if you eat a lot of fat, your cholesterol level goes up. But if you eat olive oil and things like it with unsaturates in it, then it seems to not increase your cholesterol level in a bad way. It increases what's called HDL, or good cholesterol. So there is a grounds for breaking fats down into good and bad. And the bad ones are the saturates. They clog arteries. The good ones are things like olive oil, the oils, the unsaturates, and things like vegetable oils, because they're believed to be a bit better for you. But I guess we still have to think about maybe our diet and our weight and not having that much fat in our diets, and then we shouldn't spend our whole time drinking gallons of olive oil, but that's sort of another issue as well, I suppose, isn't it? And whilst we're on the topic of eating healthily... George from Cambridge called in to say, if you don't eat enough cholesterol, does your body not just make it anyway? Uh, absolutely. The, the, the cholesterol, the idea that you should have a, a low cholesterol diet to lower your cholesterol is completely flawed. In, in fact, if you eat a low-fat diet and have lots of refined carbohydrates, then your body likes to make cholesterol out of those excess carbohydrates. So it, a low-fat diet isn't the secret to lowering cholesterol levels. That was Peter Rogers from the University of Bristol dishing out dietary advice. Now, from what to put into your mouth to what causes things to come out of your nose, Les has an unusual response to sunlight. How come I'll start the sun in the morning when I'm driving to work yeah. and uh, I'll sneeze? Okay, well that, Les, is called the photic sneeze reflex and it's something which is a big problem for people who want to be in the RAF or in the US Flying Corps because when you get blinded by light, one in four people has this. It's thought to be genetic and it tends to run in families. It seems to be that when you have bright light going into your eyes, in those people that are susceptible, then the light in some way triggers you to want to sneeze. We used to think it was because the light made eyes water, the tears ran down into the nose and tickled the nose, but it happens far too quickly for that, so we don't think that's true anymore. We think it's actually that there's a bit of miswire in the back of the brain and the eye blinking and pupil constricting centre in the back of the brain is at the same time triggers your sneezing centre. So when the two things happen, you want to sneeze. Some of your questions are a little more philosophical, tackling the issues that are truly important to you. This is from Clementine in Cambridge and she says, who would win a fight between a hippo and a polar bear? Well, I think that polar bears are a lot faster than hippos, so I think that element of uh, nimbleness would, would give it a big advantage. Although I guess if they got close enough, a hippo is a really vicious animal. I think more people are uh, killed by hippos in Africa than they are by lions and tigers and actual carnivores. Finally for this week, a memorable question from Jack on the Costa del Sol. Memory is triggered by music, by smell of food, different places, um, and songs, uh, music, uh, very interesting stuff. How does that happen? Well, the, the thing that's going on here is the brain is full of a dense nest of connections from one nerve cell to the other. And if you take smell as an example, because you've already mentioned that one, and that's a good example, 
When you have a smell coming into the nose, it, first of all, smell molecules, odorants as they're known, dock with tiny receptors on the surface of nerve cells and they trigger nerve cells at the top of your nose. And they then pass through fine nerve fibres into a, a structure called the olfactory tract, which then runs underneath the brain and then goes directly into the surface of the brain. And it links up with parts of the brain that are very close to where memory is encoded in our brains. And so what we think is going on, because smell is a very primitive sense, it's connected to that part of the brain which is concerned with our kind of emotions, our animalistic behaviour, uh, our sex drive, our general arousal, and also where memories are laid down. And for that reason, what scientists think is going on is that when you're presented with a smell, it triggers or unleashes all these other sensations, probably because there are multiple ways into a cell to find, or multiple routes to find the same information. And so if you hear a combination of sounds and smells and events, then it can unleash this cascade of sort of cell connections, which triggers memories. It's also very interesting the way that memories are stored in our brains because there have been some ideas that you know you almost store it like a film clip something happens to you you store it like a film clip but new research is showing that actually your memory is probably more like a jigsaw puzzle or a collage and you've got all sorts of bits all over the place so it's quite easy to, to trigger and build memories from all these different things so that's how they think it works That's all we have time for, so I hope your memory reminds you to tune in next week when we're back with even more of the very best bits of The Naked Scientists. We discuss a new measurement for hazardicity. I would say that the risk posed by a curtain over one year, being substantial as we now know, should be the unit of measurement. So one curtain would be that amount of risk. And we find a simple way to make dry rice sticky. It looks like a jam jar sticking off the end of a knife. If this special edition of The Naked Scientist has whet your appetite, you can catch up with all the previous episodes by going to www.thenakedscientist.com forward slash podcasts. And whilst you're at it, why not pay a visit to the thriving hub of science discussion that is our web forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. And although Chris is away, he's still eager to get all of your science questions, so keep them coming in to chris at thenakedscientists.com. That's it from me, Ben Valsler. And me, Mira Senthilingam. We'll see you again next week for more of the best bits of naked science. So until then, goodbye. goodbye.